Hello, Marlins fans, and welcome to another episode of Swings and Mishes. We are sort of in a bit of a routine here, uh, as all of you are tuning in for what is likely the same reason to hear more about JT Realmuto. So you didn't, you didn't have, say he- you didn't say hello to Braves fans. Oh well, Dodgers it's the Braves fans, fans the Dodgers fans, is Reds fans. <laughs> Reds I mean, fans. Uh, <laughs> but but particularly Marlins fans, we're we're happy you've stuck around. And to all of the newbies that are joining us, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm Jeremy Taché. I'm the producer of this podcast. And Craig Mish, our guy with all of the information, is here once again. Uh, and let's get right to it. JT Ramuto, the LA Dodgers all of a sudden is the conversation. What, what are you hearing in regards to the Dodgers and anything else regarding JT, Craig? This is going to force an early retirement from Swings and Mishes from <laughs> the story. It feels like Stanton all over again uh, last year, but we got some clarity there. It didn't go this long. Okay, so uh, here we go again. So Joe Frazzaro, who uh, I've been friends with for a long time, and, and um, we want to certainly give him credit for mentioning he's he's mentioned the Dodgers early on and he also mentioned them earlier in the week as a possibility for getting involved in in a potential trade with the Marlins previously my only information and knowledge was that the, the Marlins had asked for Cody Bellinger and had not come down from that price apparently at this point it looks like the Marlins' asking price on Real Muto remains high, but not nearly as high, and also, quite frankly, uh, a little ridiculous hmm. to ask for teams' best players with more control. It just that was not going to happen. But at the same time, why not ask for the best and wait out to see if someone's going to give you what you what you're asking for? It's I would do the same thing. It's like playing fantasy baseball. You you want to make a trade that works for both sides, but you can shoot high without insulting somebody and see if somebody's willing to pay your price. And the Dodgers were not going to do that. The Braves were not going to do that. The Astros were not going to do that. And then obviously the price came down at that point. So the names that that have been reported it appear appear at least for the time being to be accurate in terms of the discussion. Uh, Ruiz, the catcher for the Dodgers, as a potential one player going back to the Marlins. If not Ruiz, uh, Verdugo, their young outfielder, as, would go back to the Marlins. It would not be both of them. It would be one of them. And I'm not sure who it would end up being, although Ruiz does make some sense uh, as a catcher who potentially could replace JT in, in the trade in 2020. I don't think that he'd be a factor for uh, 2019 from what I understand. So that's the Dodgers end of it to this point. I don't believe that we're on the eve of a trade. I think that this still could take another week or two, but I do think we are a lot closer now than we were in the last month or two. I do think at this point, we're not at the critical stage, but we're getting close because pitchers and catchers are coming soon. And February is coming soon, and very similar to how the Marlins traded Christian Gelich, I think that the timeline is kind of setting up to where you set a price and then you decide what to do. So the natural question, and I think a lot of people who are probably listening to this, is, is the question of the Braves, which from the very beginning I have had them at the top in interest in players, and that has not changed for me at all. I still do think 
the Dodgers would love to have Real Muto. I think the Marlins would love to trade with the Braves and acquire the players that they would want for Real Muto from the Braves. I think that potentially they would covet those players even more. But, Jeremy, it takes two teams to make a trade. Mm. At first, I had heard that it was the Marlins that were not engaging the Braves enough to make a deal. Now I'm not so sure that the Braves are engaging the Marlins enough to make a deal. And it just may be that the best offer the Marlins have right now and the best player amongst all of the offers that they've discussed could be this kid Ruiz, the catcher, or maybe even Verdugo. I'm not sure. And if that is indeed the case, well, the Marlins are going to have to take the best player that they can in this deal. And if it's Ruiz or if it's Verdugo, then they're going to deal with the Dodgers. So the Braves at some point soon are going to have to step up and and give either a final offer or just some credible offer because while it would be fair to say the Marlins' ask was too high on Albies, at this point I do believe that the Marlins are willing to accept uh, different players in a deal from the Braves. And, and if the Braves are just going to hang on to these top prospects and not be willing to go a little bit extra or a little bit more than what the Dodgers – are then he's going to end up in LA that that's kind of the way that I see it it would be an upset for me it would be disappointing to say the least because I know how much the Marlins love this pitcher Ian Anderson that's on Atlanta they would love to have him I think the Marlins would have an ace and to me he is a more important piece for the future than Ruiz would be honestly at catchers just I, I value catcher very much right but an ace pitcher is I mean, I mean, there's a reason why, uh, you know, Patrick Corbin has got the money that he did from the Washington Nationals. You just cannot find ace frontline type pitchers. And every indication is that this Anderson is. But the Marlins may not be able to get Anderson and other things from the Braves, which is what they want to do. How far will Atlanta go, Jeremy? That is the question. If they do not go far enough, uh, it, this could be a two-team race at this point. I think there are other teams involved, but I do think that it may come down to these two teams, will Atlanta take the next step or will the Dodgers, and I would say really end up getting uh, Real Muto? It would be, a, for me, if I'm a Braves fan, I would be disappointed because this is a game-changing MVP-type player. Uh, that, look, I, I could care less where he ends up. I don't have a dog in the fight. My only dog is I hope that he gets traded uh, somewhere and they're able to work this out. If it's L.A., it's not, I mean, great. He goes to L.A., Marlins get what they get back fine. But, boy, if, if you're the Braves and you're done with your offseason doing what you've just done and nothing else, I, I suppose it keeps you competitive to where you were last year. But this holding prospect stuff, especially when you have eight in the top 100, right. I'm not saying that you have to give them to the Marlins. That's not the case, Jeremy. But, you, but at some point, you've got to look at this and see what, what lies out there for you. If you don't want to spend the money on Harper, okay, fine. But you're telling me that giving up, Anderson and two other prospects or one other prospect and maybe, uh, you know, Ender Inciarte potentially or another player like that's not enough to, to make this happen and get mm. this kid for, get real Muto for two years. He's going to change that team. Right. But, but not, apparently, you know, <laughs> Alex Anthopoulos, the head of the Braves is a very smart guy and he's, he's played this very well to this point, but, but he may not get this player if, if he's not willing to take that extra step. And that's where we stand. Well, real quick thing to point out with that, though, is is one of the top prospects that we just talked about is Ruiz. He's a catcher, and you've pointed out for a while, going back to like our first podcast, you've been talking about this guy, Will Banfield, who the Marlins moved up to draft or, or you know, drafted above slot as a high school catcher. 
And he seemingly has seemed to be what is their catcher of the future. So what do you make of if they end up trading JT for Ruiz, what does that do to Banfield and how does this all work within their farm system? Yeah, it's, it's very hard for people to, to admit when they've made a mistake or admit there are things out of frustration. Um, and I'm not afraid of doing that. So, but I, I'm not going to go back and delete my tweet. That's not what I'm going to do. Uh, but, but I, but reading the, the story yesterday, it just it still doesn't add up that that's the best that the Marlins can do for JT Realmuto. I just can't believe it. I mean, I've looked up Ruiz. He seems like a phenomenal type player, but but I don't think he'll ever be Realmuto. I don't, and I just see so much on the talent side of the Braves that I was kind of like it just it just wasn't adding up for me. And truth be told, I didn't really think it through as much as I probably should have. Uh, if the Marlins were offering, and this was pointed out to me, if the Marlins were offering JT. Uh, five years or four years. Let's say JT took the contract, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to block Banfield anyway. So, right. so right. I, I'm not above coming on any radio show mm-hmm. on Twitter, on social media and saying, maybe I was just a little frustrated at the time. Again, if he goes to the Dodgers, this is no indictment of them at all. I would be thrilled to see that happen. It's just that it is surprising to me at this point that other teams have not stepped up to get this kind of player. I just can't believe that we are sitting here and, and no one is willing to give up two frontline type prospects for this player. I understand he only has two years of control. I would make the case that this player is as valuable or more valuable than Paul Goldschmidt going to St. Louis. Mm. Goldschmidt only had one year of service time left. St. Louis feels like they can sign him to, or they're going to try to sign him to a long-term extension. I would tell you anywhere JT goes, they should feel like they have a chance to sign him to a long-term extension, maybe even now. So it was a little bit out of frustration there. So I'm not going to retract it Hmm. because it is a little weird that you would put Banfield so high up there on the pedestal. And then all of a sudden now a timeline of another catcher is going to be matched up, but it just may come down to Jeremy. This is the best offer that they have. And they, and they have to take the best offer that they have. And now that there's all this traction, when do you think it gets done? Like when, when will we stop leading our podcast with JT Romuto uh, talk? I hope, I hope uh, next week. Mm. I hope next week. Or the, or the week after at the latest. This can't go past that. Right. Well, and, and you hope it doesn't lead into FanFest. No. Um, and that's no. not something that you can have happening. No, and I don't want to even get into that now. It's not worth it. I just hope right. that he gets traded before then. I hope he gets traded before camp opens, before anything further comes, comes out of that. So, I mean, it's, at, some, at some point, and you never want to see this happen either, um, at some point, if, if, this, if this doesn't happen next week and then we're bleeding into February – I mean, would the Marlins come out and say that they're not going to trade him at all, and that's the end mm-hmm. and to stop the discussions? I mean, boy, I mean, I would that would be a scenario that I do not want to see play out. So, let's uh, certainly hope for the best. And there are so many other great topics in baseball, and it's a shame right. that that we have to you know keep starting off with this. But I've kind of made my bed with the percentage meter, and I understand that there are so many fans that listen and they want to know the insight. But as a reporter covering this story. Uh, covering the same story over and over again, you do want some closure at some point. And I think right. for me personally, I would like some closure in the next week or two so we can, and it won't be nearly as exciting. And I understand there won't be, there won't be people uh, with as many eyes on me or having notifications on things that I say, but there's also mm-hmm. pressure that, that goes along with that. I'd like that uh, hopefully to end over the mm-hmm. next couple of weeks and then spring training can start and that'll be, and I, and I can get back to fantasy baseball too. 
Right. And we'll see what happens there. And, and so we have a, an interview coming up in just a couple of minutes with Greg Brown, who's a former Florida Marlin, actually, and now the yeah. head coach at NSU. But before we get to that and his introduction, I just wanted to cover a couple of topics with you, uh, you know, just going forward in terms of the Marlins. So uh, the biggest news that we've been covering all offseason or that you've been covering all offseason, in my opinion, has nothing to do with JT Ramuto. It has to do with Billy the Marlin. Now, what's the latest update? In regards to Billy. Yeah, that, that I think is coming down the pipeline pretty soon, too. I'm not sure exactly what, they're, um, what the Marlins' plans are. I, I will tell you that Billy the Marlin is going to look completely different than he has in the past. Uh, I don't know if this will be a Fan Fest debut. I don't know if this will be a social media debut, maybe similar to how they did the uh, Jersey stuff. But uh, we're going to have a new-looking Billy the Marlin, and it's coming soon. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that'll be next week or the week after, or it'll be fan fest, but I, I don't, I don't think that, that, <laughs> that honestly, even the Marlins realize the magnitude of what you do when you change a mascot. It's gigantic, especially them. It's in the, he's been the mascot since 93. So certainly a lot of people are all over this. Uh, will I be the one to put this stuff out on the new look and all that? I think I've done my part with it. I think I'll let the Marlins handle the rest unless I get a tip of, of some kind. I have tried a little bit, but I feel yeah. a little weird about it. But, uh, but there, there, will be, there will be a new Billy the Marlin, and, and I would guess that by, by FanFest, we'll, uh, we'll see him. You know, we've dealt with players leaving this franchise, but the one constant has been Billy the Marlin, so a completely different look is going to be startling for some. We can't diminish the, the interest of that. Right. Uh, it's, it's a new face. And again, the other, thing, the other thing, too, is that when you have a team, and everyone knows that I call it how it is, when you have a team that's not going to be very good, and the Marlins are not going to be very good, as a young fan, as a child, and I have a young son who's, who gravitates to some of the players, he doesn't know them all, but he knows Billy the Marlin, and all of the young kids know who Billy the Marlin is, and you can hire Billy the Marlin to come to your birthday party. I've done right. that. Uh, so it's kind of important. It, 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 it's, it's something that everyone can associate with. And, and I, I do think that they're taking it seriously. It's just that I, 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 I think there's a lot of intrigue with it. I don't know exactly how he's going to look or what he's going to look like, but I thought worth two minutes in this podcast to discuss. I want the new Billy the Marlin at my birthday party. Uh, <laughs> new news that, that you've heard in regards to Fan Fest for the Marlins coming up in a couple of weeks? Um, it's, it's going to be more of a nighttime event, three to 7 PM. The, the, the Sunday, uh, following the Super Bowl. it's free. Uh, parking is free. Uh, I'm a little intrigued on the state of the Marlins, which is going to be only for, I believe, uh, VIPs or season ticket holders, which is going to happen before that. I don't, I don't know that we're going to have access to that to see what happens. Those are always interesting though, because you have real fans like asking real questions, some happy, some not. And to get the responses that you would get, we've seen that in the town halls. And it makes for good theater, too. I don't know if, if that's going to be open to the media. And then, you know, some players will talk and all that. But I'm get, at least getting the feeling that this is, this is really being built as more of a fan event than a media event. It's a guess for me this year. I don't want to speak out of line, but I'm guessing that. And I think that that's what's important. I think that you want to re-engage the fans again, let them know who these new players are, young players are on the team. Uh, fan fest uh, media i could always take it or leave it in the past it hasn't been super important to me more important to me and should be for parents to take their kids 
and get them back into baseball again. So that's kind of the way that I've approached it. But certainly if there is something media wise to cover, you or I will be there. Right. And you were over uh, near Nova yesterday for the interview with Greg Brown at Nova Southeastern College. But Nova Southeastern, the high school, actually has some cool stuff coming up tonight um, on ESPN. Yeah, on ESPN2, and I want to mention this because I'm a supporter of, of uh, NSU and, and sports there as well, is that they're going to play at the uh, Noel, uh, Brown Center tonight. It's going to be uh, Sunrise Christian taking on uh, the high school basketball team. And it will be on ESPN2 on Friday night, for those of you who are interested. As everybody knows, Vernon Carey Jr., who committed to Duke, is one of the top three kids in the country in all of college basketball. Most people think, from who I've spoken to over there, that he will be eventually the number one overall pick in the NBA draft as well. Not to mention his teammate, Scotty Barnes, who also will end up committing and going to some school and playing at a very high level. Whenever your team is playing on ESPN in such a small environment like it is there, it's definitely worth checking out and watching. So uh, check it out on TV tonight or head over on there to the campus. And I wanted to give them a nice little shout out there because they've been so good to me. Yeah, Vernon's also a really good kid. He came in to speak with us uh, at Seven Sports Extra probably six months ago. Great kid, very, very, very humble. So I'm, I'm excited to see him doing good things. Um, and so now's the time to intro us into this interview with Greg Brown. I, I've luckily had a chance to listen to this already, and I think baseball junkies like myself are going to love this. So what do you want to say about Greg before uh, we get things started here? Yeah, I think that for, for if, you, if you are like yourself, Jeremy, a baseball junkie, and I would encourage those of you who listen to Swings and Mishes, look, I, do, I, don't, I don't consider what I do a favor for all of you who are listening, but I think that you would be doing yourself a favor if you're listening to this and continuing this with this interview. Uh, Greg is a very sharp, intelligent mind in the game and has uh, played at the minor league level. He has scouted players at the major league level. He has won a championship with his team in college at the Division II level, and players at the highest level in all of Major League Baseball are continually, uh, continually, excuse me, going back to him to, uh, to get training, including J.D. Martinez, you could make the case, was the best hitter in all of baseball last year. So uh, these stories of just local guys who have Marlins ties, who, who Greg does, he spent a lot of years in the Marlins organization. Right. I thought it would be interesting to, to kind of bring him to light and also touch on what is going on with catching in this world. Like mm-hmm. why, why is JT Real Muto so far above, I think, Yadier Molina too, but why are there only a couple or two or three elite catchers in the game that don't even hit, there's no hitting and catching anymore. Where has this gone? Everyone doesn't have to be Mike Piazza, but where are the home run guys? Where are the guys hitting 280 with a 330 on base and 25 home runs and 90 runs driven in? There are only five of them or four. And, and there's like 15, 20 guys that, that are just receivers. And that's certainly fine. But why is that? Why is this trend happening? Is it being taught at the high school level, the college level? He spoke to a group recently about that as well. And I wanted to get his thoughts on that. So I would encourage those of you who listen to me on a weekly basis on here to continue and listen for the next 15 or 20 minutes, because you will really learn something uh, on, on him. And uh, I, I wanted to bring the story uh, to the podcast today. Yeah, he does a great job of explaining all of the things that you just talked about, especially the catching game. So everyone, please continue to uh, tune into that. And real quick, before we get to Greg, Uh, The last thing is that we do have some spring training tickets to give away 
uh, for the Marlins coming up. And so the way that you're going to be able to get those is we're going to draw at random from those of you that tweet at Swings and Mishes. And if you want to tag Craig, if you want to tag myself, but at Swings and Mishes is what you need to tag. And tweet us with the hashtag swing, as in swings and mishes, swing training. Hashtag swing training. And all of you will give, I think we can probably give that through the weekend. Um, And I'm going to cut that off on Monday morning. And then I will draw at random from all of the people that tweet at us, at swings and mishes, hashtag swing training. And you might get a chance to win some free Marlins tickets. Roger Dean Stadium in, in Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium in uh, Jupiter, Florida, courtesy of them. Uh, we'll pick two tickets uh, this week, two tickets next week, and two tickets the following week. We'll give away a total of six, uh, three pairs before spring training starts. It's funny, I got to know the head coach of NSU baseball many years ago at Cliff Floyd's foundation as he always represented the baseball team there. And uh, ironically, during one of those years where we had Cliff Floyd's foundation, Greg Brown, the head coach, ended up winning the 2016 Division II National Championship. And thanks so much for coming on and coming on to Swings Admissions today. You have a really interesting background, and I thought it would be an interesting story to tell. So thanks so much for doing it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, and I uh, just really, uh, really enjoy being able to tell the story. Yeah. Well, Brownie, let's let's kind of start off with your background. And for a lot of people who listen to this podcast that are Marlins fans, not only are you the head coach at NSU, you were in the Marlins organization for a number of years. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to start off by talking about kind of how that happened, how the Marlins acquired you and your kind of experience in their system. Well, in 2003, I signed as a non-drafted free agent uh, by the Florida Marlins. And uh, it was the best thing to ever happen to me from a player's perspective from a learning perspective uh my first catching coordinator and catching and manager was tim cousins the uh catching and field coordinator for the baltimore orioles in the big leagues and uh i got to be mentored by somebody who i really had a lot of respect for and was able to teach me like the finer parts of the game how to be a professional how to run a pitching staff um, and I think that a lot of the lessons that I learned in that time, and I, I got to play with the Marlins all the way up to AA and through um, the spring training of 2007, uh, was I got to learn so much about the game that I've used in my career post-playing. And um, as a local kid who grew up in Hollywood and Pembroke Pines, and uh, I got the chance to play for my hometown team, uh, it was very special to me, and uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Did you develop any relationships at that time with players that we may have heard about that have played through the Marlins system? Because certainly in that era that you were in the minor leagues, the major league team ended up winning the World Series in 2003, very competitive in 2004, 2005 as well. Yeah, so I was able to uh, forge relationships with a couple of the big leaguers, like the well-known guys, uh, Juan Pierre and Dontrell Willis, uh, most notably, um, as well as Chris Aguila. And... Um, Dontrell and I kind of got attached because I was his off-season catcher, and uh, I did a lot of work with him, getting him prepped for like the WBC, and um, and it actually ended up helping me in my career because uh, the brass ended up noticing that I was, um, you know, I had a positive effect on him as well as the guys that I came up with in the minor leagues, like Josh Johnson, Scott Olson. Logan Kenzing, Jeff Fulcino, Yorman Bizzardo. I mean, that was our starting five in 2004 in Jupiter. And so I just, I feel very fortunate to have been part of like a lot of great players' development. Um, you know, it's one of those jobs as a 
second string catcher most of the time, you know, majority of my career was that I was able to develop um, the people around me and be a part of it and, and maintain relationships. And uh, I learned a ton about the clubhouse and how to have, you know, an effect on people, even when you're not necessarily in the game. And it, and it turned into a career for you beyond baseball. But I guess the interesting part of it is that there are so many fans and people who are listening that probably ask, what happened? When did you decide at what point, okay, well, I guess – uh, this dream that I've had of being a 10-year major leaguer, when did you pivot? When did you decide, okay, this is it. I want to get into coaching. I want to get into scouting. You know, I think that player development was always something that was going to be in my future. Um, the, organizations taught, uh, the organization spoke to me about it a little bit while I was still playing. Uh, and 2007 spring training, I got released. And I had a really good spring training, and, and I felt like I wasn't done baseball. I was, was going to be 27 that May. And so I ended up going to play an independent ball in the Atlantic League, and I played for the York Revolution, and I had a career year for me. Um, and towards the end of that year, my wife was about to give birth to our firstborn, uh, which is my daughter, Kennedy. And as things didn't work out for me, you know, getting picked up from the league, I, I got a phone call from actually the Marlins uh, about a scouting opening and if I would be interested in, in interviewing for it. And I took the approach of, after thinking about it long and hard, I never wanted to be a scout. I wanted to be a player, you know. And uh, when people would talk to me about being a coach, I never wanted to listen to that. I just wanted to play. And I, I kind of took a deep breath and thought about where I was in my career. And um, I decided to go all in and, and uh, retire and then start my next phase. It's always interesting because it's a tough decision that you have to make to give up a dream but then a new window and a new door opens, which we can move to. So you get the job with the Houston Astros, and now you go from player to having your eye on talent. And that takes us to the next chapter of the story, where you are basically the only one in the country who identifies a kid in J.D. Martinez, who ends up arguably being the very best hitter in all of baseball, dating back to last year. I got you. Got to take me through that story a little bit. How you found him, which we kind of know, but how you found him, the convincing that it must have taken to get the Astros to at least initially invest in him, and the relationship that you've forged since. You know, as a scout, I think that like when when I was transitioning from player to scout, I looked at players as if I played with a lot of these guys, the ones I'm evaluating. Right? I played with you know a different version of them, but I played with people who had the same skill sets or personalities. And I tried to draw on why people made it. And so going back into my playing days, I was training here at Nova Southeastern in the off season, And uh, I got to meet a freshman named J.D. Martinez, who was, uh, you know, a long-bodied kid. Um, and he had great work ethic in the cage. Like, you'd see it day in and day out, how much he was putting into it. And he didn't have great results even as a freshman, you know. But he had this relentlessness that I think was evident there. And then so now fast forward two years when it's his draft year in 2009 and he had made a name for himself in the scouting community. He was scouted and drafted out of high school, um, but it was late. And, you know, his career here at Nova Southeastern, I think that the one thing that was very difficult to look at was was he facing the best pitching day in and day out? And then the second thing was he had a very unorthodox style. So how was that going to translate to the big leagues? And the thing that I always held on to him was, was his relentlessness and 
his makeup as a hitter. Like I like the obsessive nature that he had, and he had an ability to cash in runs. And I think that RBIs are a huge indicator as to a person's ability to hit. And you look throughout history, people, you know, that have have ratios of uh, home run, you know, 25 home runs and 50 RBIs. That's not really a productive player. I, I look for guys that have ability to drive in runs even when they're making outs and or not driving in themselves. And so JD really kind of fit that mold. And uh, you know, he he was very aggressive. He had an idea and a concept of what he was doing. And again, he had this just tenacity to him that said that he was going to do everything it took to be a big leaguer. And some guys signed just because they want to be professionals. This guy wanted to be a big leaguer, and uh, we drafted him, and, and we fortunately we took him in the 20th round. There were other teams that were definitely in on him, but we got him in the 20th round. I had him much higher than that, and uh, you know, every single chance I got, I would bring uh, my cross-checker, my scout director, my national guy over to see him hit BP if we were going to see another player. And so, you know, it, it was widely known that he was my guy, and this was uh, my gut feel guy um, that I had toted to the organization. And fortunately, we were in position to take him, and they took him where they were comfortable. And I think from the day he stepped foot in a uniform, he separated himself with what we now uh, would call like exit velocity. His bat was louder than the guys that he was playing against. And, you know, he was originally signed. He's a fifth outfielder in um, Greenville. And he ends up uh, within two years hitting his way to the big leagues with at like a 340-plus clip. And um, just – Watching his journey is something that I've been. It's been very special to me personally, not only drafting him, but then taking over at Nova Southeastern and helping him along the way. You know, uh, we facilitate his hitting, and uh, he and I talk hitting quite often. And this goes back to even when he just signed, um, and just watching his maturity as a player. It's it's been great uh, to see, and every single thing he gets within this game is well deserved. It's also interesting because I don't think that people realize that. I mean, maybe there is some similarity. I mean, his his kind of adversity was at the big league level. Yours was at the minor league level. You almost had no choice, and you started your second career. There was a point with J.D. Martinez where there was no doubt that his big league career was questioned. The Astros more or less gave up on this player. Uh, you know, I've posted on social media. It's been no secret. I've seen him out here with you year after year working on his craft even after he's made it. But what part of that adversity point where it didn't work out in Houston and then obviously worked out everywhere else that you had to step in or he had to step in? How did that whole thing resolve itself and how did the Astros whiff so badly? You know, I think it's one of those interesting things where people people refer to him as a failed big leaguer. And you go back, he hit 250 and in two different – as a career Houston Astro, he hit 250. And – over two years, he led them in RBIs, one including a demotion that they sent him to the minor leagues. I think that organizationally and philosophically, they were at odds. And I think that um, the transition that J.D. created happened in the offseason leading into spring training when he was released. And I think during that time, they recognized that there was an overhaul. I mean, he went down to Venezuela and was had success. Um and I just think that from an organization, they had decided to move on. And, and a lot of that comes with when you have a takeover and there's a transition to the direction that an organization is going to go. And, you know, Jeff Luna stated that he believes that that's one of the greatest regret like that he has uh, in his in his tenure there. And, you know, you can't argue with the success that they've had at the big league level. Obviously, a lot of those draft picks that have been succeeding, including 
um, guys like Altuve and Springer and they they've and Correa they came when a different regime was in charge and into the transition and uh, I mean I think that so you know they could have regrets but they got a World Series title so I don't think that's as big of a deal at, in today's age I think that um, the story of JD though is sometimes you need a fresh start and I think that going over to the Tigers and performing right away as he did in the minor leagues where I think he hit somewhere around 10 home runs in 20 games um, and then getting called up to the big leagues and when he had opportunities in the big leagues which were a little bit limited at the beginning he took advantage it late inning home runs I think that identification of a player's success is sometimes can be misconstrued when we look strictly at data I think that we have to understand there's a human element where players can change and grow and transform and reinvent themselves and if you were as flawed mechanically as JD was early in his career and he hit his way to the big leagues as ferociously as he did there probably was an elite hand-eye coordination that existed prior to giving him elite mechanics. And I think that sometimes that that we we believe that um, what they are is what they are rather than what they could be. And so, uh, humbling takes place. Um, bottoming out takes place. And sometimes you have to learn from, from struggles. And, and I think that's part of our journey, and I think that's actually – I think people are more drawn to that than they are um, just simply a Ken Griffey Jr. who was unbelievably talented from the start in a Hall of Fame career. And But even in his journey, he had struggles. And I think that that's what we lose sight of often. And in, in the case of being released, I think that J.D. learned a lot. I think the Astros learned a lot. And I think that, um, you know, both are successful, and I think that we can move on from that. Yeah, and you're being humble because you've been integral in his career. You've been integral in a lot of other players who have come through here as the head coach, uh, as a mentor. Uh, Miles Michaelis is a name that everybody knows with the St. Louis Cardinals. Mike Fires, another pitcher. Um, you know, Carlos Asuaje, who I know left the uh, Padres organization this year. But yet, among all the things that you've accomplished. And these, these kids are all coming back to see you, and I, I think it's one of the hidden gems here in, in Davey is to see you and working with them. Winning a championship with your team, uh, what, where, where is your, I don't know if there's a most gratification, but is it seeing the kids now that you've, that you've won a championship for in 2016? Is it these kids that keep coming back? Where do you rank? Where do you weigh that? Well, I think our, our, our greatest thing that we have is the impact that we make on these young men's lives and changing the direction of their lives in the sense of college opportunity, uh, degrees, watching where they go beyond here, not just into professional baseball. So I think that's the greatest um, reward that we have as coaches, as leaders, as, as teachers, educators. I think we're all that wrapped into one. Um, winning games allows us a platform, and I think that – uh, the national championship and that team was very, very special when it comes to the, the shaping the culture of what we are and, and how the guys before them left the jersey in a better place and they left it in a better place for everybody else. It's, it's been a culmination of that. That team got the ultimate reward, which is they live on forever and uh, we will ever forever be able to draw on to that moment. Um, and they were the strongest group of individuals that I've ever been around, especially because six months later, one of our uh, players got killed in a car accident and I watched how they banded together and were able to carry each other through that and so I think that when you look at the juxtaposition of that of the ultimate winning and the ultimate loss um, it's allowed this program and, and me as a leader to be more centered and in what is really valued and I think that's impact. 
recently you had a chance to speak at a uh, convention, a very big convention for all of baseball, college and high school baseball, and predominantly around your ability to teach and being a former uh, catcher in minor league baseball. A lot of people listening to this are listening because they want to know where JT Real Muto is going to go. Uh, and the reason why he's so highly coveted is because he is really in a category maybe by himself as being the best catcher in Major League Baseball. But yet we've seen a trend on every level at this point that there are so few all-around fielding and hitting catchers. Being somebody that has spoken and has coached and has understood this, wh- where are we headed with catching? Is it just Are we only going to see defensive catchers come up to the big leagues at this point because that's what's being taught and that's what big league uh, teams want? Or is there some chance for a renaissance where we go back 10, 20 years ago where we have 15 really good catchers that can do both in the big leagues? Where are we headed? Well, I think that the first thing we have to say is that the way catchers are being evaluated is totally different than it was 15 to 20 years ago. You know, what we might think from the from our eyes is a good catcher is now being challenged in data, and that has to do, do with stolen strikes. It has to do with um, which which stolen strikes over the course of a year ends up equating to run saved. Which, what, what is stolen strikes for people who are listening that may not know? Well, it has to do with the, the perimeter of the zone and the, what is over time been called a strike even in that exists beyond what we see as the box on TV. So the umpires have a strike zone that is beyond that. And due, due to that zone over time, a pitch on whatever XY coordinate was called a strike 99.7% of the time, right? Now, another pitch was called 73% of the time. And if you have a high percentage of getting that 73% of the time pitch called a strike, you are getting strikes in the margin. Is that framing? Is that like the same thing or is that well, different? I think framing is like more of in the past, like it's moving the ball from a sense of – I think of framing of moving the ball after you catch it. Uh, I think that receiving is, is presenting the baseball as you receive it in a way that maybe it exists with a little bit of sleight of hand, but it – it indicates that it was a better pitch than it was. The more we raise the right hand of the umpire, the better it is for getting deeper into games, for for down the road after when we're in start 30 through 32, you know, having better stuff down the road. I think there's a lot of quantifiable data that we don't necessarily know how to quantify, but it's there. And so the low-hanging fruit is being able to steal strikes. And so we, when it when it affects winning, you can quantify that a catcher who's going to receive 150 baseballs over the course of a nine-inning game has more of an effect than as a hitter when he has four at-plate appearances. And if you can quantify that, then your war and all the other justifications that we have of a player's value can be then swayed towards that because of the position you play. So your defensive value outweighs your offensive value. So what's a great example of that? Well, the last two years in the World Series – the backup catcher has gotten the majority of the starts in the World Series in Barnes over Grandal, and yet Grandal gets into the free agent market, and he's the most coveted catcher financially out of anybody. And so, it, it I think that you just have to be able to evaluate, and I think it changes the 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 mindset is that it's okay to miss balls if we're living in the margins. Where when I was coming up in the game. You never wanted to miss a ball. You know, you're, you're, if you missed a ball, everybody noticed. But now it, 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 there's a direct correlation to catchers who are the best in receiving to also having the most drops because they're living around the margin. And 
I think that um, developing a catcher requires uh, a new thought, like where we're looking at JT as an example. He's a former shortstop. And we look at the athleticism that's required as velocity has spiked. Uh, the average fastball being close to 93 miles an hour this year, uh, we're only going to see that trend probably climb. I think that scouts today, and it sounds crazy to utter this, but scouts today are chasing the next guy that's going to throw 110 more than the chasing a guy that's throwing 90. And so 100 is now a new norm that we're seeing day in and day out from bullpens as bullpens become more centered. So therefore, the ability to catch these guys is is now a there's a higher level of anxiety because there's less time to be able to react so if we could get a better athlete who can handle the stress of what that is and when it's not so much catching a 100 mile or 105 mile an hour jordan hicks fastball what it is is their misses their misses when that when they're not exact and we, we take for granted how precise these are these guys are at throwing the baseball but it's being able to catch the balls that are that are not thrown to where they were indicated to throw. And I think that we're going to find over time that catchers receiving stats far outweigh their offensive stats. If you can combine a Pudge Rodriguez or a JT or, you know, Salvador Perez, yeah, now you have perennial all-stars that are winning gold gloves as well as maybe silver sluggers. And that guy is what we call a Hall of Famer. So it's, I just think that those guys are rare. And I'm not saying that JT is going to be a Hall of Famer, but if he does this for 10 years, I mean, his statistics are going to be in a stratosphere that, um, that, that in his metrics would be on both sides of the ball. Yeah. And so from, I know what we're looking for, uh, what major leaguers are looking for and scouts are looking for from an evaluator's point of view, from a coaching point of view, does, has that, is that going to change also where you're saying that more athletic catchers is what are what teams are looking for. But if we specifically look at JT for a minute, he is one and everybody else more or less is not fair to say. So, from your perspective as a coach, when you are training your catchers now or you're instructing kids who are trying to become catchers, have you changed your mindset to say, hey, look, this is just basically you know, put hitting aside. This is all about receiving, and then will that trend just continue that way? I think that one of the really cool things that's happening in the amateur game that's going to help the professional game is with data, I think catchers are now more involved in calling games than ever before at the collegiate ranks. And so I think that one of um, the mistakes in evaluating is, well, he doesn't call his own game. Well, I think that the catchers are actually more involved in scouting reports now than when I was a player and I called my own game as an amateur. You can call the best pitch in the world and it gets hit, and you can call the worst pitch in the world and, you know, they pop it up. I mean, it, it's one of these things where uh, – but you're, you're playing tendencies and trends and – you know, hot zones, cold zones, and that stuff changes. And we have to give credit to the hitters because they evolve too um, as a pitch caller. But we also need to force feed them and when they're not going well, when they're not making those adjustments. And so I think that developing a catcher is developing in their brain, developing their decision-making, developing their physical attributes, and um, creating a passion for the position. I think that you can never disassociate passion with this position, this position specifically, when you create an environment that they know they're valued for their glove work versus their bat is something that we also are going to see a trend in going forward um, as people start to stress the the stolen strike metric. And therefore, we 
as a public, again, it's a change in paradigm. How do you change a mindset of what we've been observing? Because forever, when we were growing up, we looked in the newspaper to find out the hitting leaders, and that hitting leader was always identified based on batting average. So every year, when I was growing up, Tony Gwen and you know Edgar Martinez, they were on top of the their respective leagues with regards to who the hitter was, right? But you start taking OPS and you start taking all those things in account, I think that the, today's newspaper would look completely different. And we have a bunch of youth that are growing up in the game with those as our metrics, today's metrics. And so us decision makers have grew up in the fossilized statistic era. And I think that we have to learn. I, I don't believe that new, new age baseball can learn the wisdom of the, the old school baseball guy. But I do think that the old school baseball guy can create a hybrid for himself and learn the new age. Yeah, and we are starting to see some pushback, even from the national media, to how many scouts are being let go. And, and now we could certainly, I think, head back in that direction. I know you don't like talking about yourself and your humble when it comes to this and all the former players that you've had that have come through the championship that you've won. But I guess for people who are listening, who may be learning about you for the first time, wondering, okay, you know, he's, he's developed and helped develop arguably a lot of big league players, arguably one of the best hitters in all of baseball. He's won a championship at, uh, at Nova Southeastern University. Where do you see yourself kind of headed? Is, I know you're rooted in South Florida, so this is your home. Where would you like to see yourself uh, in five years, ten years, or is this simply the job that you prefer and would like to stay? You know, I like to be where my feet are, and, and I'm very cognizant of being present with whom I'm with. Uh, I do. Every, I think everybody has aspirations and long-term goals. I think that I have um, the ability to affect um, any organization or program that I was able to run, and, and I think that's something that you have to have that confidence going into it. You know, but I think that um, long-term. I'd like to win a World Series at the Division Two level, which we've already done, Division One, and in the big leagues. And I think that that, that would be a pretty unique uh, – I don't know if it's ever been done, but that would be a pretty cool career goal to do. Um, I think that uh, I, I am very fortunate in the position that I am because I get to dabble into professional development while I'm a, you know, running a program and as a college coach – one of the coolest things about it is I get to be the GM, the you know the scouting director, the director of player ops, and 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 I think that that's something that um, allows me to be versatile, and I, I think that um, um, my interest on a day to day basis are in getting people better, and sometimes I got to wear a different hat, and so uh, down the road I want to work with good people and I want to help develop kids. If I'm not making an impact in people's lives, then I probably got to go find another place to be. Thanks again to Coach Brown for participating on Swings and Mishes. Hey, separate uh, thing wanted to get to here on the show before we go. I know the Super Bowl is coming up, and uh, for those of you who love these uh, prop bets, uh, they are just so much fun. There's hundreds of them, and for those of you who want to get in on them, all you got to do is go over to BetDSI.com right now and use promo code SWINGS101. That's S-W-I-N-G-S-101. Make your first deposit and use that promo code, and you're going to match your first deposit up to $2,500. Incredible props, all fun, involving Maroon 5 and the National Anthem and all the player props, too. If you think you can get an edge on those, go ahead over. It is BetDSI.com. Look, more money will be bet on the Super Bowl 
than any other game in the history of sports. So you may as well get down to have a little fun. The Super Bowl is next week. It is uh, going to be probably one of the best Super Bowls we've ever seen played. Right now, New England is a two-and-a-half-point favorite over the Rams. The total is 57. You can bet on that and all the Super Bowl props. BetDSI.com is your place to get the fastest payout, reliable service, and the place that I would recommend this uh, Super Bowl season. Again, BetDSI.com. Use promo code SWINGS101.